Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Today, we are once again returning to Company of Heroes 3, uh, and we are once again joined by uh, Matt Phillip, lead gameplay designer, and Will Ward, senior designer. Matt and Will, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us again. Hello. Uh, so... You just unveiled the Africa Corps uh, and the concept for your North African campaign. But just to set the table for our listeners a bit, uh, can you all talk through what your vision is for North Africa uh, for, the, for that campaign? And then what you're kind of doing with the Africa Corps uh, in terms of faction design? Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, this all comes back to selecting the Mediterranean theater way back in the day with kind of our working alongside our players. And once we had identified that the Mediterranean was going to be the place that we were going to take this next game, um, we set our eyes to Italy first. But that to us just wasn't enough. And we wanted to, I think one of our biggest pillars that we established was environmental diversity. We really wanted to bring some new environments to our game. And we think that that in itself is a big piece of the puzzle. So that's where we kind of like, wait a second, why don't we wrap this together with the North African theater. And that was always something that was highly desired from our fans, especially, I think it's been maybe one of the most requested factions um, to see like the Africa Corps in action. Um, so kind of, yeah, was, that, that was kind of the driving points to it all. And then in terms of how it's going to play out, yeah, what we have is we actually have the North African, what we're calling it is a co- an operation, which is actually going to be a linear linear campaign a little bit different than actually the dynamic campaign map campaign that's uh, going to take place in Italy. So that's a bit of the starting information on that. Um, and in terms of, so, you know, to, to pry a little bit, does that mean like the game will have multiple operations? Like, are you seeing this as a like a uh, way to work in a, a few different, like more traditional company of heroes style like campaigns uh, in alongside the dynamic campaign, or is uh, the North Africa operation going to serve as more of a tutorialization function uh, for the game? Well, yeah, I think it's a little uh, hard to determine that in the, for the future, but for now, the reason, part of the reason why we made this, uh, we had it like this was to pretty much kind of straddle both worlds because the roots of Company of Heroes is, are a linear campaign and there is a strong desire from our players to, to, to maintain that experience. So going for a dynamic campaign with Italy and adding that Total War-esque layer, that's going to be appealing for some, but potentially, you know, there might be some others that are, you know, where's my juicy linear campaign? So we kind of thought, why not straddle both worlds and kind of involve that? Um, and then for the future, yeah, we'll kind of see how it goes, I think. Uh, and then this also, yeah, introduces the Africa core. Uh, I got to play with it in one of the missions from that campaign. Uh, and it is, you know, as, as some of the stuff that was in the player guide, uh, for this demo noted, it's a, uh, you're, you're emphasizing mobility a lot, which certainly seems in keeping with just everything that people think of when, when they think about like the uh the campaign in the desert but i'm curious what that means in terms of like how the africa core plays specifically because i think you know every faction has tanks every faction has mobility uh so what like what are we doing with africa core uh to really like punch that up and emphasize that mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I it's great. To, it feels very refreshing at this point now to be able to just talk about the fact that we we are going to be launching this game with four factions, which we've never done before. And that is, oh man, that's awesome. It's really cool to come out of the gate with four factions. And we talked a little bit about this, I think, last time in our last session where, so if we're doing two on the allied side and two on the axis side, we generally kind of skew it towards that each side has one offensively oriented Action and another mm-hmm. has a defensive one. So um, you've experienced the the Wehrmacht, um previously, and they're the defensive. You know they're all about entrenchment and fortifications, and you're, you've nailed it that with the well, we call them the DAC. So I'll just refer to them as the DAC. Um, they are the the hit and run faction or the high the hyper aggressive faction um, that relies on mobility. But what what exactly does that mean, right? And how do we tap into that? That's the part that it's it's actually kind of difficult and tricky. So that might be maybe this is where some of our unique mechanics that are kind of trying their best to kind of fill this fantasy of that. So we have tank riding and towing as capabilities, 
throughout the faction. So for example, we may have a half track that deploys um, an LEIG mortar or uh, maybe an AT gun and that they, they can quickly get to the field and they kind of, we want them to have like a quick counter punch. And that's kind of like, so if you were to take like Dawn of War for a second and you took like the Eldar, um, they had webway gates that made them faster and then they could even warp around. Now we can't exactly do that in World War II, but we're trying to encapsulate that same theme. So we're kind of trying to leverage towing as one of the primary ways to do that. But what else can we do? Maybe we can have some type of like um, speed buff when vehicles are nearby, or maybe vehicles can capture territory to harass points to you know give that more of that hit and run style of a faction. But those are some, I don't know, I'd say some of the, the bits as well. Uh, Will, do you have anything maybe to add on that you've noted in terms of how maneuverability and uh, the deck kind of focus around? I think you can see it as well in, in the faction's core infantry. Uh, instead of kind of focusing on the infantry being the the bread and butter of the faction, a lot of their roles are delegated to vehicles instead. So you still have core infantry like Panzergrand is, but they're, they're more of a defensive unit themselves so that you don't have to babysit them. You can spend more of your time focusing on light vehicles like the crowd shoots and all the 254 um, half-tracks. Um so yeah, you, you have a lot more time to spend with those vehicles. You're not having to micromanage everything that's going on. But yeah, as, as Matt said, using things like transports, which every faction have anyway, but having things like the 250 half-track, tank riding and towing means that this faction can move around the field and get to the action a lot quicker. Um, so yeah, they're, they're a very uh, mobile faction. They can dig in if needed, but by comparison to the Vermacht, yeah, it's all speed. One of the things I was curious about, whether it's just a uh, thing that's highlighted in the mission or whether this is also kind of a uh, core pillar of how uh, the, the DAC ends up working, is that in the, in the mission uh, that, that I played, one of, the, one of the things you have to do uh, to lead off is you have this, um, this tow recovery vehicle that walks up to burned out hulks and basically reses them under your control. Uh, and, and first, you know, it's got a little, little timer to just like turn a wreck back into a unit and then it can do uh, a pretty rapid repair to get the thing up to, uh, up to full strength. And I was wondering, uh, is that going to be like a major element of the multiplayer dynamic as well? Because I do know that like the deck has a reputation uh, just in the history of like having to be one of the scrappier and more improvisational uh, forces uh, in, in World War Two. And I am I am curious if whether like was that mostly a thing that existed for that mission or is an Africa core player kind of going to be tasked with picking up and piecing their army sort of together on the fly. Mm. So yeah, the pretty much out of the gate, what we want to do here is we actually want to make that a universal mechanic, which will mm -hmm. be seen actually in some of the other factions as well, but it will be highly embedded into the DAC because it's actually going to be that unit that you use the recovery vehicle is going to be part of their core tools within the main faction. So they will be um, able to, restore and repair their own tanks, but also the enemy's tanks and make them you, you, uh, against them. This actually piggybacks off of a Company of Heroes 1 mechanic, which um, in Company of Heroes 1, there was a Panzer Elite faction that had a vehicle mm -hmm. recovery, but um, it could only recover your own vehicles. So we kind of thought, let's take it a step further and now recover enemies. However, we do realize that I think we've noticed definitely in multiplayer matches that it, this will be a mechanic that it's a lot of fun, but it's going to require a, a steady hand to balance as well, because that you know it's one of those things that you know if you're if you're in a winning position and then you can grab grab the, the soils of you know of your enemies and use them against them like that's it could really you know there's a lot off. of early whoa low low uh, yeah. energy to <laughs> yeah. the to the tow recovery vehicle. <laughs> um, yeah, I can I can only imagine uh, the the panic you'd have to you, you just have to like rush that thing and try to get it off the board uh mm -hmm. in a fight yeah it, and it is fragile like we we have ensured that it's a fragile vehicle i we've we've also tried where we can to make it so that it's not necessarily something that's only for snowballing i personally use it as a as a defensive tool i tend to build one when i know i'm on the back foot if i can afford things like maybe a couple of landmines and an at gun i might set traps 
just try and encourage my enemy to to dive deep because if they do so they leave their vehicles in a vulnerable position where i can restore them and they can't stop me but because the vehicle is is quite fragile in itself it can't really make those deep dives into enemy territory and resurrect without protection um so it definitely has some some risks to doing it um one other thing I've, I like I was curious about is to what degree because it's been a while since I played the played the other uh, factions here, so I can't remember how widely shared these abilities were among their units. But African Core, everybody appears to be able to repair a vehicle. Um, like every every unit seems to have some capacity to pitch in and like affect repairs uh on, on an armored vehicle um is that a unique like ever core strength uh the ability to sort of keep their keep their forces rolling yeah as we kind of noted earlier and will mentioned like this is a very vehicle centric faction and we don't want you bogged down constantly repairing every vehicle which is the one unit so yeah you will definitely make use of multiple units multiple infantry units uh can repair your vehicles and also just self-repair uh, on the vehicle itself, uh, just to maintain that momentum and that offensive capability, because you don't want the offensive faction always in the base repairing everything because then you can counterattack. So yeah, it's just to keep them aggressive. Uh, so we've done this a little bit with some of the other factions, like the Panzer Leading Company in Rose One, for example. Yeah, units like the the Panzer Grenadier, for example, they don't have the strongest repair. It's what we refer to as rudimentary repair. So it's it's slower than it would be if it was say a Pioneer unit, uh, but the, the vast majority of infantry can all ship in to make things go faster if you need it. And if you have, for example, a, a unit that's uh, tank riding or in a transport, they get damaged and have to back out, at least that squad can then jump off and help with the repairs without having to go all the way back to HQ. They can just do it near the front line. Um, one other thing that I was sort of thinking about as I was I was playing this uh, this level is that for the most part, with one really notable exception, the North Africa campaign is waged with the lightest tanks of World War II. Um, the the armies that started fighting there were really using the last of the um, interwar tank inventory. Um, and, you know, just because of the size of the the theater, it was sort of a, the place where, like, the, the light tank um and the and the sort of the lighter medium tank uh like tended to reign a bit supreme um and it got me thinking about the fact that like in terms of most other company of heroes games you're dealing with 1944 armies where like you're going to encounter uh a tiger now the tiger showed up in north africa that's where it was it was where it was unveiled uh but playing africore this is an this is an army that runs on like panzer threes um and the at least the, the the british forces you're fighting um in this in this uh in in this early in in this level are also relying on like really light tanks and i'm curious one whether or not like i'm curious how they scale up in terms of like heavier armor uh but also i was sort of thinking about like just where faction design and then like and faction identity sort of run into tension with like people's idea of historical accuracy right because like i think it's very easy to think okay well like a tiger should show up and just be able to like pop any like light tank immediately uh but if you have a faction that's sort of built around fast agile like dashing tanks then that has to be balanced as well. So I'm curious how you like assess all these factors, both when you're like sort of building the, the, the faction and then balancing them against each other. Mm, yeah. There without a doubt, this of all the four factions has been the most challenging faction to design uh, because of that hit and run nature. And because it's a vehicle centric and you're right that uh, this is a, also very light vehicle centric. And a lot of the, the firepower and the armor isn't quite up to snuff to some of the other factions. So we have to, you have to find a way to compensate because they're, they're fragile, right? So how do we proceed? How do we move forward? If we know like, okay, just on paper, there is a challenge here with their tool set. Um, so for example, in the past, I'd say with some of the faction developments, we kind of for better or for worse fell into this trap of 
oh, this is the early game faction and this is the late game faction. Maybe this is the mid game faction in terms of like strengths. Mm-hmm. Now, we do want to maintain that. It is, I'd say it's part of the soul of Company of Heroes to have these ebbs and flows and to have moments where, okay, this faction, you know, like I'll take the uh, the Americans, for example, they should start off strong out of the gate with their infantry. And we want them to kind of start uh, off uh, like that. But um, yeah, with the DAC, we don't, it's interesting. Like oh, unit, I'd say overlap is also one of the other issues too, is we identified with, there's so many like tanks that are in the same caliber. So how does that face off against all the other different armies? But it is something that I think in this world of single player, it's a lot easier to control this and to contain it. And of course, you know, work with the enemies. But from a multiplayer perspective, this will, between now and when we ship this game, this will be a challenge that we're going to have to work with our players to really iron out all the kinks in. Um, also, plus just our modes too, from 1v1 to 4v4. You know, we wouldn't want something where, like, for example, with 4v4, where perhaps you have less mobility because there's just more players on the field. Um, we don't want this faction to just be like, you know, weaker than the others. Um, so, yeah, that, that's some initial thoughts on that. Um, well, I'm not sure if you have anything else to tack on. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's a it's a difficult thing to manage. For example, like some of the the Keystone vehicles, some of which we've already mentioned, things like the Panzer III was all but redundant at the end of the um, Africa conflict, and on the British side as well, tanks like the Matilda were still sporting two pound guns. It's still it's something that is difficult to balance. We still want these iconic units to be part of our faction, but we have to make sure that they they don't enter the field 15, 20 minutes in and have no viable targets because it's already outgunned by the likes of, say, a Panzer IV. Um, and the same goes for our infantry weapons as well. Like we, we have units going around in Africa with anti-tank rifles, which were all but phased out by the time that we get to Italy. So yeah, it, it definitely is a challenge. It's something we still want to maintain the authenticity of. Uh, we want to represent these units, uh, but we have to kind of tread a, a thin line between uh, authenticity and balance in some cases. Yeah, I um, like it's, it's certainly it also uh, it also seemed like one area that uh, these units can sort of be punched up a bit is that. They are incredibly quick at circling around heavier tanks. Uh, that is that is for that is for sure. Uh, so I suppose if you're a, um, you know, if if you're willing to make like micro micro play more of a part of like the faction dynamic, then you could also just torment someone fielding uh, a super heavy tank by literally like trying to sort of run rings around them. Uh, and I feel like that's, that's always been part of company of heroes a, a bit, right? Is I like, I will, I just have to be faster than your turret traversal. Um, but I, yeah, I could, I could see that also being a, a, a way in with this stuff, but, but also Micro is a touchy subject, right? Like there's some people who really do not want to both like play with that level of like having to attend to each of your units. And also it's very easy to create a situation where there's people who realize like I can't keep up with a player who just like if they're going to like micro one tank, there's not a lot I can do uh, if if they're just going to be like that type of player. Um, and that might just not be an RTS uh, for, for me. So like I, that's it. It's interesting how like, you know, starting with a how do you how do you like put a faction like uh, the Africa Corps into a game? Suddenly you're sort of forced to confront a lot of like really profound questions about your game's overall identity and like who gets to play it and how they play it. Yeah. Yeah, I think this really resonates to me with one of our, we try very hard to stick to a design pillar, which we call uh, strategy and tactics should be dexterity. And so if we want that across all the factions, but then we're also noting that the deck are the highest micro faction, how do we merge those two together? So maybe, for example, we can dial into active abilities to compensate, but that then requires more micro. So this is where actually, so one of the pieces of the puzzle that was not in that demo uh, for the DAC is actually called an armory. And an, uh, the armory is going to be a, a supplemental building to this faction that has uh, unique capabilities like passive upgrades and buffs. 
the vehicles. Uh, things like side skirts, they might have called down, uh, maybe self-repair. We wanted to dial into vehicle customization because if you're going to be, if you have to micro that Panzer III a little harder than maybe a Sherman, we want you to have some capabilities, some passive enhancements, maybe some particular auras or an active ability to help you in that fight. So that again, it's about the strategies that you employ at the right moments instead of simply out clicking. Um, so yeah, it's uh, again, this will be, yeah, it'll be a back and forth and an up and down to just get that right balance between all four factions. But uh, yeah, those are our intentions. And so one other thing that you, you sort of flagged here is that you're also like introducing uh, the, the British forces. Um, and so you don't, you, you don't, you don't play around with them. You sort of play against them uh, in this, in this game. But uh, I feel like over the course of company of company of heroes history, if I had to say like the, aspect of the war that like their identity swings the most uh i think it would be uh the anything like in the just overall commonwealth british vein uh because in company of heroes one the british forces are very turtled up um and everything is about just like creating and saturating kill zones um and that's that's kind of how you extend map control i'd love the shit out of that faction honestly oh yeah they were so much fun um but then like with uh coming of heroes 2 when commonwealth forces rolled out it's much more leaning into um a bit more of like a guns of navarone type identity a little bit more emphasis on uh like special forces um a, a little bit a little bit more emphasis on uh, really, really sort of micro uh, type abilities and approaches, and I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious, like where you're landing with with this game, uh, and like what the what the what the faction identity uh, is that that you see is going to be sort of a, an amalgam of the two approaches, or are we are we leaning firmly on one side or the other? Well, Jonah, why don't you start on this one? Yeah, sure. So yeah, the the, the British forces um, were very much a, a place for us to take learnings and take feedback from the community, um, because as much as we love the Company of Heroes one British faction, they just simply weren't viable for multiplayer. Um, they were fantastic for single player or casual gameplay, but in multiplayer they fell apart. We wanted to try where we could to make sure this this faction is the most accessible, but not necessarily single player only or only single player viable. So this, this faction is very simplified in its tech structure. Um, it still has plenty of options to make sure that you never really get outpaced, but it is the easiest faction to jump into first and learn that the core mechanics of the game. If you've never really played Company of Heroes before or you're returning or even new to the RTS genre, this is the faction to start with. Uh, and, it, and in that, it's it's a very, very easy faction to get on with. Its mechanics are streamlined. Its units are very versatile. Um, and they don't necessarily have any of the extra layers of complexity like, say, the the American veterancy system or the the need to lean on like vehicles like the DAC have. The, the British have well-rounded infantry vehicles, tanks, um, that kind of encourage you to play as safely as you want. You can be very aggressive with them, but you can also be defensive. Um, yeah, do you want to talk to some of the particular tools they have, Matt? Sure. Yeah, one of the actually special notables about the British forces overall in for this game is that we actually technically kind of have two of them. So because in Italy, so in the single player experience, you will be playing as uh, the Allies, and that's going to be as the Americans and as the British. However, the British are then also the opponent in North Africa. Um, and in terms of mult for multiplayer armies, they will also be the North African um, multiplayer counterpart to the DAC as well. So that's a notable there. Just uh, I think that's, well, that one's going to twist up a few people as well. But yeah, as Will stated, um, you know, I think the goal for the British forces is to make them the most well-rounded they've probably ever been. 
uh, and to be really sturdy. They've, we've, they've, we've explored some really cool things in the past, but um, yeah, they just, they had a, they had some gimmicks and they certainly weren't viable in certain cases. So we wanted to make it away from that and make sure that this was a universally accepted faction that could be played by anyone in any situation. Um, and then, yeah, I think in terms of their like actual unit composition, they have a really nice roster this time that I think just feels good. We've been able to inject some different infantry types like the foot guards. Um, they have a great assortment of tanks. They're kind of defensive in their infantry, but offensive with their vehicles. Uh, I really, my, one of my personal favorites is the light vehicle, the Humber, but they've got Humber, the Stewart. Bishop, Crusader, Matilda, they got a really fun array of tanks that are very diff are different. So depending on how you want to, whether you want to be a little more agile or you want to be a little bit more fortified and defensive, they've got a good array of tanks to kind of tailor to different strategies. Yeah, I think um, it, it definitely like in the in the like mission I played uh, there, there was definitely a lot of uh familiar stuff like having the tanks sort of burrow uh into into sandbag uh you know emplacements and having to sort of uh break the shell on a british tank before you could before you could really uh engage it uh which which reminds me i think something else that i was curious about was just uh in terms of uh map design are you going to be be pretty consistently trying to give like North African maps a different uh, overall like tactical vibe than uh, the ones like set in Italy. Cause like here I, I did notice it, there's just a lot more uh, there's a hell of a lot more open ground uh, where traversal is trickier. Like the uh, teaches you very early on that, you know, mo like a ton of your units have, um, smoke uh discharge abilities so that you can cut lines of sight and traverse safely uh and i'm i'm, I'm just kind of curious if you if you're looking to like in the in in multiplayer like will a north african map imply certain things or is it not quite that like uh binary no, you you are absolutely right in in map design we have where possible, uh, ensure that our North African maps are more open. They still have the same aspects, things like uh, cover, line of sight blocking, um, and even things like height, but they are always going to be more open because it's it's usually based in the desert. Um, we, we also have environments like airfields, for example, where you have plenty of open space. And that was a kind of a core requirement in uh, making sure we could cater to this vehicle gameplay that the DAC and the Brits have against each other. It doesn't mean that the the usual styles of gameplay aren't viable. Uh, it just means that you have a bit more variety in, in how you play. If you want to turtle down on, on uh, Africa maps, you easily can. You can build your own defenses if you feel like an area is too exposed, like you mentioned, using abilities like uh, smoke cover to make sure that you can cross areas as, as quickly as possible. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, our North African environments, um, they play differently, not too different, but different enough to make them exciting and, and challenging in their own ways. Um, one, I had one, this is, so I'm going to be asking you about a glitch I saw in the demo. And I know that like demos are like by, by their nature glitchy, but it was the type of glitch I see so many games struggle with and i'm curious like why this is uh and then also why why you would lean, why you would lean into it uh so towing vehicle towing um at a couple places where because the towing animation didn't seem to quite work like the things didn't quite match up and like there's a point where it's like you got to move that 88 and i was like i i promise you i am trying uh, and the, and the, um, the, the, the tow truck can't quite get the angle and the 88 doesn't seem to be like mounting on, but it reminds me of, it seems like in a lot of strategy games, the minute you like try to make two units interact, uh, you are introducing a host of possibility for, for just absolute chaos. And I'm curious, is that chaos coming from like 
the fact that now in a video game you have to make all this look good that you can't just i think in the 90s if you were like this unit's being towed the two models would just suck onto each other and like move away (laughs) uh but now like you know you do kind of want to see the little uh vehicle recovery thing get the hook into a metal loop on the front of a tank like of course uh but at the same time now you got to like animate that and make it look good I'm, I'm i'm just curious like is it is it just a is it just a hard thing from like in terms of implementing the mechanic or it does the mechanic become hard to into uh like implement because of how good you have to make these things look now yeah it's it's really all the above so you know it starts with okay you know what can we you know what can we inject into like this game that fills a fantasy oh so, for example, the fantasy of towing and tank riding. But then when you get into the nitty gritty and then figure out, OK, well, how are we actually going to get this into our game without, without opening a huge can of worms from, from the functional perspective? Because we're, uh, yeah, definitely the engineers that are working on this specific system, like it's going to take them a while because we need to, we pretty much need to marry gameplay and presentation and bring them together. But at the same time, and I think some games out there do this well, where we know that gameplay at the end of the day has to trump presentation because if you are frustrated when you're using this, then you're not going to want to use it. So, for example, especially in multiplayer, if you know if you can't get that Toad AT gun to where you want it to be and where it needs to face in time, people are just not going to want to use that unit entirely. So it truly lives and dies based on its like responsiveness, um, how well it can actually function in the game and all these other things. So this is where we're going to have to make a few sacrifices. I know with towing, um, you know, I'll use a specific example. At one point, we were going to try to have an animation of them actually physically getting off the off the, the team weapon and even jumping into the, um, the truck. But we just knew right away after, um, you know, a little bit of play testing that just we would not have that time available to us. So, um, yeah, we'd had, you know, these are tough decisions that you have to make on the presentation layer in order to make sure that it hits the gameplay. Uh, otherwise, yeah, you know, we don't want everyone ignoring that feature. Yeah. Uh, an example as well of where this where this has been done in the past and worked is with buildings. Like we don't necessarily need to have our infantry go through an open door of a building and then garrison it naturally they could just stand next to the building and then appear inside it if we wanted to make it so that it's the fastest possible reaction that's what we can do and we've we've found a nice balance where you still have that presentation layer you see infantry open the door and all charge in and then garrison the windows and that that feels good it feels well like matt said it it feels that um that fantasy where you see infantry breaking out the windows on the second floor because they've entered the building and that that's nice but yeah it is finding that balance it's making sure you can have a system that doesn't completely break gameplay down yeah and this is something that's always interesting to talk about with company heroes as a whole because we our game is more organic we try to breathe life into the game so even as something as just our, our soldiers and our squads like our pivot speeds so if you i'll just compare us to for example age of empires they're kind of instant, right? Whereas we actually show off a little pivot speed and make it look natural and organic to how a soldier would move. Um, but again, we are always trying to find that balance between the two worlds. Um, so it's always always an interesting hot topic for sure. Yeah. Um, how much of that stuff do you end up having to tune? Because as you were talking about that, I was thinking about how um, one of the things that is re- that has always sort of been really striking about just Company of Heroes, like it's fundamental to the identity, is that like when you have inventory squads clashing, right? You have troops seeking out cover. Uh, the 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 squads fight in a really dynamic way, um, and you will see them sort of, uh, you know, if if light cover is destroyed, you will frequently see the soldier who is using it uh, shift position to a nearby piece of cover uh if if he can uh but of course also like what you created then is you create a game where like where the player tells a squad to go can be very different from where the squad wants to fight right and where it looks good um and it reminds me a lot of like you know the the people who the people always argued that like an underappreciated aspect of uh like starcraft one was that movement was really floaty because the animation system uh had a lot of tricks 
to make it look like the units were 3D, uh, even though they were even though they were 2D. Uh, and then, you know, StarCraft 2, everything is very just like quick and very efficiently like sorts into little like, you know, neatly organized blobs uh, and with, with Company of Heroes. Like, I think, you know, it seems like you would always be wrestling uh, with that with that tension between you want the units to be really dynamic as they as they fight it out and do things that like kind of look smart and convincing like you're having a really good gunfight but also uh a lot of times rts players will get really frustrated the minute they observe a behavior that's contrary to intent um and i'm I'm curious how often this like requires tuning or like reconsideration or balancing and, and what and what the levers are that you you pull there yeah, there's a lot that goes on in this world with our game specifically. I'm also just reminded of like, I remember watching some YouTube video on someone talking about StarCraft 2, and they said, if you're watching the fight, then you're not doing what you should be doing, where we're kind of the opposite. We are all about cinematic warfare, and we actually do want you watching the fight and then making those micro tactical little moves to reposition your troops into cover or uh, set up a new teep weapon or something like that. So on one side, you've got precision movement, responsiveness. We want everyone, you want to know what you're doing. And then, but on the other side, there's all these inner workings to our squad behavior that try to breathe life into the, just so many cool things into like, I don't know, that make our, our game, I think I feel, feel like they'll stand out. Which is, for example, we've got even like squad leaders that have hand gestures, uh, but those squad those hand gestures that take maybe 0.5 of a second, that means they're not shooting for 0.5 of a second. So how do we factor that into the damage output of the squad? We have the squad now, for example, actually for the first time in the series doing an, an in-cover animation to show that they're getting into cover. But again, you know, how does that feed into the overall performance of the squad versus another squad? Um, and then there's other pieces to this. We've got flinching and hit reactions as if an explosion goes by, like a mortar shell. Again, there's a reaction to that. How do we balance that out with, um, you know, let's say you're in a critical engagement and they happen to play a, a hit rate. One of the entities of our soldiers plays a little small hit reaction for that, that small moment that, you know, causes you to lose the fight or something like that. So, um, yeah, it's something pretty much luckily design and animation work are very, we're really glued together. And we're always striving to work with our players here and find there's a lot of tuning that goes on in this space, especially at the infantry level. Even just the fact that, again, coming back to organic warfare, like when squads are shooting at each other, they actually miss. So we register that there is a this is where there's the controversial topic of RNG. Um, mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. that is uh, it is part of. It's just so part of the you know, the series. It's part of that soul again of of Company of Heroes. That's what makes it like. I remember Quinn Duffy, you know, talking about this way back in the day and just showcasing all sorts of videos and and giving us all sorts of research on this topic. And that is just a pillar a pillar we've always wanted to maintain throughout the series. But um, it's uh yeah, it can be challenging to work with at times. How. So uh, it's kind of a, a two-layered question, I, I suppose. How sensitive is the team to these things versus like, or would you, or would the team be left to its druthers versus like, how sensitive to to it is the community and like your your community council uh, that you're working with? Because like, for me, I am not going to notice. Um, there's just no world in which I'm going to notice uh, or take the time to run experiments with somebody in a skirmish of like, if these two squads encounter each other in this little battle space, uh, how many times does the result repeat exactly in terms of who's left standing, how much hit points, you know, um, how, how repeatable is the engagement? I'm never going to notice, but I'm curious I know Pete, I know there are people who do. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I'm curious, like what the, like when it, when it, when it, when you bring up a thing, like squads can miss coming from a wargaming background, I'm like, hell yeah, of course they can. They should like that. Like that is, that is how these units should, should play out. Is that like, yes, sometimes a squad is going to, or like people flinching, like, yep, that's, that's kind of suppression in a way. Like it's all, it, it's all fine. But RTS balance is often like approaches every absolute thing. 
uh, where if this is the paper strength of a unit that meets this unit, it really should unfold uh, like in this exact repeatable way. And I'm, I'm just curious, uh, one, like the degree of sensitivity that, uh, your community has to these things. And then, uh, whether or not, I'm just curious among like, you know, the design team and the people making the game, uh, is there tension between, I want something that looks really dynamic and maybe sure it's a bit chaotic, but it's awesome versus people who are like, but the unit should still do what they say on the tin. Want to take a crack uh, at yes, this? Well? <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a tough one because I mean, as you implied already, there there is definitely going to be a split. There's there's two audiences here. We have one that is completely engrossed in the cinematic warfare and having everything randomly go off planes being shot down and tank shells bouncing and things like that, which make the game so iconic. We don't want that to the degree where things become unreliable. And and with our community council, like they are mostly composed of our uh, longest standing uh, competitive players. A lot of our community council are um, frequent PvP players, and some of them are tournament winners. So we have people who have probably played this to um, its extremes, but they still love what makes Company of Heroes the cinematic game that it is. They would probably err on the side of less RNG or as as little as they can get away with. Um, but again, among the staff, among the gameplay team in particular, we are all um, Company of Heroes 1 and Company of Heroes 2 players uh, from the past as well. And the RNG has changed throughout those two. Company of Heroes 1, for example, has a lot more factors that can can influence gameplay. When we're talking about, say, squads reacting to gunfire, in Co. 1, an artillery shell can spread a squad out dramatically. They run and jump for cover. It takes control away for, for far longer. Co. 2 tightened that experience. Um, so in Co. 3, we are still kind of trying to tread that balance. We don't want it to, to feel like um, gameplay is running away from you. You always want you to feel like you're the one who's in control. But that that cinematic and organic feeling is is so so key and so core. Um, but not not to um, diverge too much from the topic, we also try and add that cinematic layer in other places too. Our audio, for example, really helps us sell that cinematic experience. Where gameplay, we can't necessarily risk it. For example, our our voice lines, our sound effects can make things feel more organic and more realistic so the gameplay doesn't have to necessarily suffer. Um, by the way, this, is, this might just be uh, recency bias, and uh, because I was playing such an army uh, armor-heavy uh, faction the other day, but I'm curious, is suppression toned down a bit in company of here's three. Cause I was, I was, I was just realizing I'm re- I was just reflecting on what, what I was seeing yesterday. And like, there's maybe only a couple places where I had units like sort of get thoroughly stymied by suppression and like sort of hit the deck, uh, and, and need to be basically, uh, saved by tanks, uh, knocking out the suppressing element. But beyond that, I was, I was just realizing like, I didn't see as much, suppression as i'm used to seeing and i'm curious if that is just because i was playing an army that was like oops all tanks <laughs> or uh <laughs> if or if uh a value has been changed mm. uh in terms of like how you want the game to work i think there's probably a few different factors probably though because yeah in this particular mission you're right you're given vehicles out of the gate so you know even if there were suppression threats across the, the map you're kind of like you know we want you to be in a, in a place uh, that you're dominant and you're kind of having fun kind of knocking things out. Uh, I, we know that the British HMG is tuned a little differently as well. And we also do tune suppression specifically. We tailor it to single player uh, a little differently than multiplayer. Mm. So that we are, we are a little more forgiving in the single player space uh, overall, typically with, we always have been in our case, even things like um, uh, example in the campaign is we actually have um, the cone size is smaller. So they're slightly easier to flank. Um, because yeah, it just it's kind of like it kind of it's like a teaching moment, and then in multiplayer, 
Yeah, this is where we kind of, again, you know, we don't work under the concept of the universal armies. We want to tailor the army for each crafted experience. We want it to feel good in both those lights because there are, it's, there are, it's important to have small adjustments in each of these spaces to get cater, as Will stated, the audiences that play them. Um, so, yeah, yeah, probably not as many HMGs in that, in that uh, mission overall, but I think in some of our other missions, I know that I've played in Italy, where they're in buildings, for example, or um, in you know, ruins or whatever. They are, yeah, there's definitely, um, actually, uh, we actually recently had a YouTube video of going through a mission called Ortana, and that one's a slog that have, has some very entrenched HMGs uh, through the whole mission that you need to clear out using smoke, artillery, and other uh, assets. That, uh, that reminds me of just, the fact that the North African campaign is going to be a bit more of what you might associate with like traditional company if you're a single player that that did remind me uh speaking of tensions like it's funny i um yeah i think in between the last time we talked i ended up and i went and i replayed our dan assault um which was uh, a lot of fun it's a, a great company of heroes game uh but it got me thinking a bit about on on the like on the one hand, I I love uh, the dynamic campaign approach, and I think there's some smart the way you have like crafted, authored like mission design like folded into that. Like, well, this type of battle is going to have like this victory condition, or there's going to be a a, a concept to it uh, that's going to be a little bit more familiar from from a single player campaign. But on the other hand, like when I think about um, you know Company of Heroes one, at the same time, like in addition to the fact that you have uh you know just some of the the narrative stuff about like the the company making its way across normandy but you also have some like really stunning mission set pieces uh that like loom large in the imagination i'm thinking about um you know the the assault up the docks in Cherbourg in in Company of Heroes one, where like you're just basically slog. Speaking of slogs, you're slogging up a basically like uh, absolutely hellish pair of hallways, uh, trying to get to the last objectives in Cherbourg. Uh, but it's a really memorable location. It's got like sort of uh, you know the the harbor uh, stuff. I think is, is stuff you hadn't seen elsewhere in the game it feels like a unique environment and then uh the entire conceit just having to claw your way up this up this uh narrow road against these uh, german positions is really striking you have to reconsider uh sort of how you're how you're using your units and what you're going to do and got me it did get me thinking about like is there a tension between um what you need to do to design like good missions or encounters in a dynamic campaign where the outcome of each battle is going to influence the course of the campaign and what challenges the player is facing next versus kind of what you can get away with if you know it's a linear thing with pass fail conditions. Hmm. Yeah, this is definitely, I feel like this is actually one of the, the most talked about topics actually in the office as we're building the campaign uh, because we are like Ardian's Assault. I feel that, that that's a game that I worked on and I've actually come back to and replayed a lot. I feel like that's it's aged really well and it's just it's wrapped up in a nice little package that it's it's, it's nice to go back to and you can kind of just crank out the whole campaign in 10 to 12 hours and you yeah. it always feels a little different each time and it's really cool. However, I completely remember more vividly in my head, all the Company of Heroes 1 missions because they're they're more memorable. They have big, strong set pieces, the mission design, everything is really well-crafted for that experience. So this is where I think it's really good that we've gone this, these two angles of the North African linear campaign versus the, um, the, the open front of the Italian dynamic campaign. So that's that's pretty cool. But even in itself, like this is where I know for me personally, I really wanted to make sure that we kind of injected as many set piece style missions as possible, because I really think those are really important to our game and to our the, the audience that plays our game. So example, like Tobruk, for example, is a good one for North Africa. Like when you play that one, the mission, the map what you're doing, I feel that that's going to create an experience that players are going to remember for this game. 
Um, yeah, Will, any uh, any more thoughts on or any, anything there? It, yeah, this is actually a discussion I had very recently. Um, more so towards kind of what makes uh, levels memorable in Company of Heroes. We were talking about things like procedural generation. We see so much procedural generation in games nowadays um, because it's just getting more and more accessible. Uh, and, and whether or not strategy is going to move over to that way. But my argument is always that if I take a game like, say, XCOM 2, and I, I, oh, I love my XCOM and I've sunk countless hours into it, but because all those environments are procedural, I don't have an emotional attachment to any of those levels. Um, they, they're nameless to me. The, the, the things I remember about XCOM is my, my units and what happens to my characters in that environment. But with Company of Heroes, I remember the environments themselves. Um, they are so characterful. They are full of these set-piece moments. They have fantastic art in them that just make them stand out. And Company of Heroes 1 is is pretty much the rule for this. It's it's fantastic. Anyone you know who played Company of Heroes 1 will usually remember the name of their favourite mission without trouble. Um, uh, personally, mine was um, St. Lowe, which... Mm-hmm. Oh, just again, another one of those slog missions, but a, a beautiful set piece. Um, so that that's something we're we're always driving for. We want to make sure that these these missions are memorable, that these locales, these these events in history that you are playing through, they are just as memorable to you as as in the previous games. That they're things that you can look back on and go, I remember exactly what I did on this map or in this mission. I remember how it went well or how it went poorly for me. Yeah, I think the the proc gen thing is interesting because I also feel like with the design space, you can do things that are a bit dangerous because you 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 know you a a person know you did something risky here with like I created a really dicey encounter dynamic in a place I'm gonna have to really be careful about like how I situ uh, like situate it. Um, where, cause I, like, I think a lot about, um, when I, go, when I think back in the early days of like the total war franchise, like when it was still the, the risk map, but like, uh, there were like in, in the original Shogun, like each province had one map associated with it and you, mm-hmm. you fight on that map again and again, but like the side effect is I remember all the maps, right? Like you, you, you know, I, I, I'm like, Oh yep. I know that hill. I know exactly where we are in that game. I feel like the arc of total war is they've uh, gone into like more uh, procedural style maps is like, it's a little bit more like a flat table for laying out minis uh, in terms Mm -hmm. of how, and like the design features are less like literally less heightened. uh, Cause like it's a, it's a system's much stingier with like, extreme elevations and I get I get why that is you can create really unbalanced environments real easily if you're like you know what would be cool is like a vertical cliff face right in the middle of the map uh <laughs> that's that's really dicey but at the same time uh yeah like being able to get in there and and play around with that stuff uh I don't know I'm I like my feeling about this is has always been that like I like like I'm uh, like I'm in the throes of it. Like the minute somebody is saying, "Well, we got a dynamic campaign here," and and such, I'm like, I love that stuff. That that sounds great. Uh, but at the same time, there's the like there's a part of me that also knows. I often am sort of like led like the Pied Piper uh, by by the promise of these things, right? Like infinite maps, endless replayability. Uh, but then you know, I also know on a deep level that like the linear there are no forks in the road it's the same maps the same menu each time of like company of heroes one is really really memorable and created mm-hmm. a lot of like favorite encounters that i did end up replaying because the encounter was so well, well designed that it was like well i'm gonna try that on a hard difficulty um and yeah. that's and i think that's a that feels like just a, a place also where like how we market games and the things players gravitate towards um is kind of really intention sometimes with things we also treasure from like previous eras yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i i can't i can't help but remember as well when i when i first started map design for for company of heroes one and it's part of the community um 
I always used to start with a small, what I used to call engagement spaces. Um, it could only be maybe a hundred meters squared area. It'd be very, very small, but I would design cover or buildings within this small area. And that would usually be enough for me to then grow that into a map. I would start with what I think would be a, a great place to, to have a fight. And that would, that would develop the narrative for the map. Um, and it's, it's still something I do now. I usually will build out a very basic template of the map, but I will start with those, those key engagement spaces, usually the, the midway line for uh, a map between two forces. And that's, that's what gets me started. And yeah, it just makes them more memorable. Um, yeah. Um, so I know that this, uh, the, the, the mission alpha I played is going to go public, uh, July 12th through the 19th uh is is the uh is that is the heads up from joseph here uh and the game ha- now has a release date of november 17th uh and you'll be able to pre-order at company of i did want to ask you before we left like so now this is the this is the final sprint Tell me about that final sprint. Like what? Like what remains to be done? What? What is like closing out a project like this? Or at least, uh, obviously, there's always more work once it lives in the wild uh, and responding to like you know things that players discover in terms of balance and you know dynamics and, and bugs and such. But what is the task list for development on a game at this stage where you've got, uh, you know? what is it like about four months uh, and change to, to wrap this? Um, what happens in those final months? What did we say earlier? Sheer panic, something to that degree. Yeah. Because this <laughs> yeah. game is definitely, it is larger than any company heroes games uh, previously. Just for example, the units, like there's going to be, we got four factions, well over a hundred units Tons of small arm weapons, tons of mechanics. We have both an RTS layer and a campaign map layer. So just there's the volume of content that, you know, we're kind of sitting at a place where a lot of the everything that's in the game is to a, a good space, but it really needs to get to that that extra place where it's like it's truly playable in, in both a from a single player lens and from a multiplayer lens. And when it comes to multiplayer, of course, we've been on this uh, road for quite some time with um, our community council, um, but both, yeah, with private council and also publicly, we're gonna be looking to keep them along for the journey here. Um, let's get the game in their hands as much as possible so they can help validate where where we're at and really help us know like, okay, here's the top five issues. Maybe they go um, infantry gameplay, maybe it's pathing, for example. There's a lot of work that still needs to get into pathing so that you know, um, our vehicles and our infantry are moving the way we, we truly intend them to, just as the previous games. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on across the board uh, to wrap up for sure. Um, in terms of uh, like, one other thing I've been kind of curious about, I, I always ask this question now because uh, I just wonder like how disruptive or how people end up solving uh, the issue. Um, I hear really different things about how much of a challenge it is to like have more remote work uh, like looped in as part of development process. And I know I'm sure it was more challenging you know, for anyone working in 2020 and early 2021, when like everything was sort of having to be reinvented uh, in the context of a pandemic. But I'm curious, like where things have landed now, it sort of seems pretty clear that like, you know, we're, we're stuck with, uh, you know, a, a, you know, potentially dangerous illness, uh, just sort of being, being in the world uh, and an ongoing risk. I know our office uh, advice, like basically there's a brief window where it was like, okay, we're moving toward like us being in the office a lot more. And this last, like the last COVID spike was basically like, eh, put a put a pin in that continue to work mm. from home. Uh, and I'm curious, like, does it, in terms of like having people still at home um, 
versus like going into an office. Does that remain a like real point of challenge and uh, like friction just in terms of getting the work done? Or is it kind of a solved problem, just something that you've gotten used to uh, and and can work around at this stage? It's a tricky one. I think it, yeah, it is. yeah, I think for just for me in, in particular and specifically with the group that I interact with, we I know that when we're doing this and when we're finally in the game in the office, we are a very, very intimate team. Um, you know, we're in a pod together. We're play testing the game constantly looking back, having discussions and all that. And you, of course, lose that uh, to a certain degree. Um, but you find ways, of course, to adapt and to work around it. But um, yeah, I know I would love to be finaling this game like in the office together as, as a team. Um, but um, yeah, I feel like, I don't know. I just feel like Relic as a whole has done a great job supporting you know, its employees in terms of how to just create flexibility within our workspace to do the best that we can considering what's going on. Um, yeah, so it's not it's not really, for example, it's not a barrier, um, but it is certainly, uh, it can be challenging. Yeah, to connect, the, connect yeah. those dots and keep everything moving consistently. I often say that my role is like the Marge Simpson uh, of the group. It's just like I have to kind of be that respectful person to kind of nag or bring something up repeatedly. And with, yeah, when you're working from home, you know, people forget. It's just we're all human and that's how it is and that's okay. Um, but yeah, we all have to be a little bit more patient, a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more understanding with each other. And we have to over-communicate. And that's, maybe that could be, that might be the most hard, hardest part because, because we have to communicate more, that means we kind of have to do that more within a limit. You know, if you only have this amount of hours every day and this amount of energy every day, how do we go about over-communicating to kind of compensate and make sure that we're always on the right page together? Um, that's where it can be tricky, I think for me personally. Yeah. Yeah, I I completely agree, and I can't I can't emphasize enough the the tech services team and everyone supporting us behind the scenes at Relic have been phenomenal throughout everything that's happened with the pandemic. We we would not be where we are were it not for them. They have really pulled out all the stops to make sure things run as smoothly as possible. It's been disruptive for for so many industries, and and ours is no exception. So massive props to them. Um. But yeah, like it, it has, it's changed things, not necessarily for the worse. Some things have gotten better. Some things have gotten challenging. Uh, I've, I've not long uh, joined the audio team to support them with recordings. And were this a, a non-pandemic or pre-pandemic world, I would have been going out to London uh, and Berlin and recording live with them in studio. But now I'm working night shifts and doing that remotely which is obviously not as fun for me i i mean yeah. I love berlin um less so about london but um it, it changes things and hopefully there'll be some of the you know the the parts we prefer that will come back um but others i think will stay the same we have people who are, are now working remote probably for good um they prefer it that way they work better that way and i think it's it's a good thing to to have come across in a way um, I guess last question here is just in terms of the, in the arc of developing this, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if, if you don't have an answer, the answers, uh, you don't feel the answer is interesting. We, we ended up cutting it, uh, as we final the show, but I am curious if there was anything, if there's anything particular that stands out that is something that you came in thinking this is something that'll be awesome and we'll be able to make work that just ended up being a thing where once it was in the hands of playtesting, uh, you had to really like change course uh, or, uh, or had, had to substantially revamp your conception of, of how it would work. The, the biggest thing that I can think of that hits the mark for that was actually, so on our dynamic campaign map, we had the notion of these detachments so if you played the um, single player demo that we had out quite some time ago, you kind of had these mobile companies, kind of like total, so, you know, you have total, kind of like your total war pieces, your, your primary company. Yeah. But then we had like these like sub detachments that were also kind of like mini companies moving and doing all sorts of movement. 
And we got that out to, to the public because we weren't that we needed a temperature check on that. We weren't exactly sure as to where that would go. That would go. So I think we've really that's one where we're like based on feedback that we really kind of went. We've adjusted quite a bit um, and kind of moved away from just like you know managing like just even sheer amount of like let's see in that demo you you'd be controlling like up to like fifteen different units every turn. You know, we're back, we're now back down to a kind of a little bit more of a total war S space where it's kind of like, oh, you might get up from four to six to seven companies or something like that. And I think that's the biggest thing that I can identify in terms of like something that we're like, all right, let's try this. Uh Oh, it's not working. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's been quite a few things as well, not dramatic changes, but quite a few things where we have tried to adapt systems that were previously in Company Fears 1 and 2. So like our garrison, uh, garrisons, for example, our buildings and building destruction, we wanted it to be a far more cinematic, more dynamic um, system this time around. And that that isn't something that we've necessarily had to change based on feedback, but we have been sure to get as much feedback as we can around that because it, it's it's changing the norm. We don't want our players who are familiar to the franchise to see something new and assume that that's bad. Um, we, we want to kind of test the waters with them. Again, like the dynamic campaign map itself, we want to test the waters to see how this experience feels. And, and because of that, the whole um, co-development community involvement has been so, so useful. Just getting that early feedback while we can iterate and make changes, major or minor. Uh, All right. Well, good luck on the final months of production. I'm really looking forward to playing the final game. Uh, Once again, the mission alpha for the uh, mission we were discussing uh, here on the show with the uh, Avericore goes public July 12th to the 19th. Uh, Company of Heroes 3 will come out on November 17th, and you can pre-order at companyofheroes.com. That will do it for this week. This episode was produced by Leon Hafer. He was head as host in the Idle Thumbs Network. You know more about the show and discuss this episode of the community at 3movesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. 3movesahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. Uh, You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. We'll be back uh, soon with another episode of 3 Moves Ahead. Until then... Uh, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.